Long before I moved to Hollywood, I knew that to be a success, I would have to make special arrangements for shoemaking in quantity. I could not maintain an expensive establishment on the mere output of Taylor, Dietrich, myself, and a few extra hands on the side. An organization concentrating on the handmade article could do more there than satisfy a meager number of orders. An absurd situation when I was a sole possessor of a discovery which would revolutionize shoemaking. Therefore, I made up my mind from the beginning that I must enlist the aid of machines to cope with the larger section of my output. I was still opposed to the use of machines in my handmade shoes. It is still true and will always be true, as long as I am in control of the work, that what are today known as Ferengamo originals have never seen even the simplest machine. But that was no reason, I argued to myself in Santa Barbara, why the machine should not be brought in to accomplish the manufacture of shoes to my designs and patterns, and more particularly and essentially to my special last. For stock sizes, which could be retailed in the normal way. My discovery, I considered, would ensure that even machine-made shoes would not hurt the feet. They would not possess the custom tool perfection of the handmade shoe fitted to the personal order. No shoe in the world can compare with that quality, but no single shoemaker can make all the shoes in the world. And all the shoemakers in the world, working by hand to my designs and lasts, could not make all the shoes that the world consumes as it walks. The custom made shoe remains, and by the necessity of things must always remain, a narrow market which is the exclusive prerogative of those who can afford the price. This was not good enough for me. I wanted to put my shoes on the feet of as many people as possible. Therefore, I must enlist the aid of machines. I sought out manufacturers throughout the United States, in Lynn, Massachusetts, in Brooklyn, and New York City, in Philadelphia and Chicago, who would agree to manufacture shoes according to my specially prepared lasts and to my patterns. The arrangement called for me to make up lasts in the appropriate range of fittings, which my gathering experience of feet and my growing knowledge of the potential of my discovery had taught me was necessary for the most accurate fittings off the peg. And the makers would turn them out in the quantities I required to my styles, patterns, and designs. The Hollywood shop I used, not primarily as a salon for the fitting of custom-made shoes, but as an ordinary retail store. Little shoemaking was done on premises. People came in and bought the shoes displayed in the windows and on shelves as they buy their shoes in any retail shop in the world. Up to a point, the plan worked extremely well. At the peak of production, my manufacturers were turning out several hundred pairs a week, where I and my work people could only turn out a handful. They sold readily because my system of fitting proved as workable in machine manufacture as it did by hand. The extras and small part players who could not afford handmade shoes could pay the price, though it was somewhat higher than that charged by the normal boot shop because of the extreme costs involved in the manufacture of limited lines exclusively for me. For footwear, 
which they had discovered by wearing my shoes in the films, gave them so much greater comfort than any others they could buy. They came, they bought, they raved about my machine-made shoes. Better still, the big shoes in the major cities of the United States began to order my models in quantity. Yet, if it worked so far, it did not work far enough for me. I was not completely happy with the quality right from the start. And as time passed and my methods of last constructions and fittings were refined and improved with my ever-increasing knowledge of the structure and variations in feed, I became increasingly unhappy. What did it matter that my customers were content? I was not. I would send out my ideas, my instructions, my lasts, and my patterns, and back the lines would come, an ungodly sight. To my mind, they did not fit at all. The finish was poor, vamps were the wrong height, the height of the heels was incorrect, the finish on the back of the heels had been overlooked, the shanks were not according to the last, because the manufacturers had not bothered to make special ones. There were so many occasions when I was so disheartened that I had not the heart to charge the price I should have asked. To me, they were a disgrace. Yet, how could I escape the impasse? If I ceased machine production, I would be driven back into my rut as a maker of custom-made shoes with a strictly limited clientele. I could not go into every factory and personally supervise the manufacturer of each new line. All I could do was to send angry letters complaining that the work was not up to standard. And even in this, the strength of my language was limited, because some of the shoemakers were half ready to cease making shoes to these newfangled principles and get back to the normal production methods, which were so much easier and less bothersome. Yet, my conscience and my pride would not allow me to continue selling these shoddy shoes indefinitely. They offended my every instinct. They offended every principle on which my standards and reputation were built. I felt most strongly that I had an unbreakable obligation to my customers, an obligation which is summed up in the story of the woman who came to me quite early in my career in Hollywood. She walked into my shop at 10 one morning, asking for Mr. Ferengamo. I am Salvatore Ferengamo, I said. May I do something for you? Yes, I think you can, she said. But for the time being, you carry on with your business. I have plenty of time. I arrived in Hollywood from New York only this morning, and now I shall wait. Yes, madam, I replied. But your turn will be within a few minutes. Please take a seat. Never mind my turn, she said. Please go on with your work. It will amuse me to look around at the shoes and the way you work. So just go on with your business, will you please? Yes, madam, I said, though I was puzzled by her attitude. Thank you. I went on with my work. As usual, it was a busy morning and I waited on many customers. Each time I had occasion to turn to this lady, she said, No, please go on. I have plenty of time. I'm quite all right. Eventually, lunchtime arrived, and my workmen took themselves off. I was alone with a lady, and as I turned to her, she said, Well, is all the rush over now? 
Yes, madam, I said. It seems that it is. Will you please have a seat now? She was insistent. Have you finished with the business, she repeated. I said, yes, it appears so. Now I'd like to take care of you. Very well, she said. Now you sit down. I was taken aback. Yes, I stammered. But you see, my words did not come freely. I did not know what was going on. She said, will you please sit down and let me take care of you? I said, but madam, I'm the only one who takes care of my shoes. When I first started to learn shoemaking, I was barefooted and since learned to make shoes. I have always made my shoes myself. Yes, she said unperturbed. That's quite right. But I'm not trying to make shoes for you, but I would like you to sit down. I'll sit down here on this stool from which you look after your customers. I sat down opposite her, completely at a loss. Now, Mr. Ferengamo, she said, will you please take off your shoes? Embarrassed, I could only say, what for? Just take off your shoes, she said. I hope you are not afraid of a woman. Oh, no, not at all. I'm not afraid, I said. But it's just, well, nobody has ever asked me to take my shoes off in my own shop before. Never mind, you will take them off now, she said. And indeed, I was induced to obey. When I had done so, she said, do you mind taking off your socks? Yes, madam, willingly, I said, surrendering helplessly. But I won't answer for the consequences. Don't be sarcastic, she said. Take your socks off. I took one sock off and she grasped my foot. She looked right and left at it and under it and between the toes and over the toes. At last she said, put your foot down. I obeyed and she went on. Do you mind letting me see your other foot? And she repeated the inspection. When she had finished, she said, now, do you mind putting back your shoes and socks? When I had done so, she said, and now, Mr. Ferengamo, you can take care of my feet. You see, I have come from New York purposely to see you and the shoes you make. I have heard a lot about you, especially from my friends who've been tremendously pleased with your shoes. But I wanted to make sure, first of all, that you have good feet. She paused and gestured. I have ruined feet, she exclaimed. Look at them. Every shoemaker has been trying to make shoes to fit me. The consequences are that my feet are ruined. I was foolish enough never to pay attention to the feet of those crippled shoemakers. They had all kinds of deformities. It has taken me a long time to learn that if a shoemaker can take care of his own feet, other people's feet will not be ruined. So here I am. Go to it, Mr. Ferengamo. Now you can have my feet. I've never forgotten that woman and the faith she reposed in me. She exemplified in an extreme form the faith of many men and women, a faith which I construed into an inflexible determination, never to be guilty of hurting anyone's feet if I could possibly help it. Now, as the quality of my machine-made shoes continued to irritate me, I began to worry and wonder and to cast about in my mind for a solution to the deadlock.
The answer came one day. Is the answer to a stalemate usually comes in a wild simplicity. If I could maintain my output only by using the methods of mass production, and if the only way I could maintain my standards and my reputation was by the manufacture of handmade shoes, why not a system of making handmade shoes by a mass production? At first glance, the idea seemed ridiculous. Yet, I asked myself, was it truly as absurd as it sounded? Was it really a paradox? I decided it was not. One man could make only so many shoes in a week. But multiply the number of shoemakers and you multiply the number of shoes. If enough shoemakers could be found and trained in my new principles, I could provide them with patterns, models, and designs, and they would only have to execute the orders. And where else would I find the shoemakers but in Italy? My thoughts flew back to my childhood, to the days when I was wandering in Naples and working in all the shoe shops among the makers of fine handmade shoes. In Italy, there was an inexhaustible supply of shoemakers. In Italy, the country of fine craftsmen, there would be scores of master shoemakers only too glad to make shoes to my instructions. It would be profitable. It would be secure. It would be magnificent. I pondered this scheme, looking at it from all angles. There seemed to be no snags except finance. My personal resources were not sufficient to establish the organization as I imagined it. But the fact did not worry me. I knew that this was what I now had to do, and I would do it. I began to cast around for sources of additional capital. My first thought was of my brothers, Secondino, Girolamo, and Alfonso, who were now helping me again. Their repair shop at Hermosa Beach was a doomed venture from the first. To take three hours out of a day for traveling is in itself enough to condemn a new business, and so it proved. After two years, they had closed up and had entered again into work with me, though not into partnership. Now, I thought that if they could join me with my Italian venture, we could resume our own happy association. I went to them and outlined my scheme. In Italy, I told them eagerly, I can find as many shoemakers as I need. I will do with them as I now do with the machines. Supply the last, the designs, the patterns, and the styles, and they can ship them over to the States. We can use the Hollywood shop as a center for distribution, and in time we will open a chain of retail outlets throughout America, either with the shops of our own or through the leading stores in the great cities. We might even establish our own shops in England and France, anywhere in the world. It will be terrific. It will be unique. I spoke of the economic problems. Wages in Italy are lower than in America, which means that even with shipping costs, we can produce as cheaply, if not cheaper, than we do now in the States. In any case, handmade shoes pay a smaller import tariff than machine-made shoes. I talked of my own part. I will go to Italy and arrange with the leading shoemakers over there, the ones with the best equipped places and the finest workmen in their employ, to take over the manufacture. And then 
I will return to America to handle the distribution. I shall give up making custom shoes so that my mind and my time will be free to work on new designs, more wonderful designs, magnificent ideas, which I cannot, I dare not attempt to give to the machines. It was no use. Justin and Santa Barbara, they refused to listen. Their answer was the answer of several years before. Better an egg today than a hen tomorrow. Why didn't I want to rush off on another crazy idea? Why didn't I stop where I was? Who was worrying about the shoes anyway? Not your customers. Look at your customers. More and more every day. Listen to what they say about your shoes. They cannot praise them highly enough. Besides, if you want to make handmade shoes, sure, you can make hundreds of pair if you will only be sensible and introduce a few elementary machines into the manufacture. A sewing machine, a perforating machine, a skiving machine. The sewing machine, for instance, does the work better, finer, and more accurately than the finest shoemaker in the world, and in a fraction of the time. Why then are you so stubborn that you will not use any machines in all your handmade work? Why, indeed. I could only answer that just as the ear is heard. If a concert pianist misses a note, so the shoe, which is not entirely hand-caressed, will, even if only in a small degree, hurt the feet. They did not appreciate my point of view. I suppose that they considered that I was splitting feudal hairs. I was disappointed, but I was obsessed with my scheme. I felt that it was work I was called to do, and the call was stronger than my affection for my brothers. Once again, and this time, finally, we parted in the way of business, and I took my thoughts and schemes among my friends in Hollywood and Los Angeles, talking, persuading, arguing. Gradually, I aroused interest, and at last, early in 1927, a corporation was formed and a public announcement made that Salvatore Ferengamo, the shoemaker, was returning temporarily to Italy to establish a new production method which would bring Ferengamo shoes, handmade in quantity by Italian master craftsmen to the feet of the American woman. The effect of the announcement was heartening and even astonishing. Press, radio, and magazines featured the idea lavishly. Orders poured in. Every woman of fashion, every sophisticated star in Hollywood, seemed determined to be the first to buy Ferengamo's Italian shoes. They came in a stream full of vivid ideas. They all wanted shoes that would be artistic, beautiful, rich, unthinkable. I tied up the last loose ends in the States, making arrangements for the manufacturers of the machine shoes to continue during the short time I expected to be away, and then I entrained for the East. On the way across the continent, I dropped in on my friends that I had made during the past few years with my lines of machine-made shoes, the buyers and owners of big stores in the great cities. My progress was a triumphal procession. Every buyer wanted to see my new shoes, and every buyer wanted to see them first, 
and take them exclusively. In New York, for instance, George Miller, head of I. Miller & Sons, chain of shoe stores, put the matter briefly and succinctly. When you come back, Salvatore, he said, I want to see your new shoes first. We have a lot of shops and beautiful shoes, and yours will fit into them to perfection. Your future will be assured out of the presentation as we shall make of Ferengamo Creations, made in Italy through the Miller Organization. As I sailed away, I felt that I was traveling in a legend. If I had possessed the slightest doubts about my success, I might have thought that it was too good to be true. The Italy I had not seen for 13 years welcomed me with another great blast of publicity on the radio, in the press, and in periodicals. After two days rest in Bonito to enjoy the homecoming to a mother who had feared she would never see me again, strolling the streets, renewing old acquaintances, and looking with affectionate, nostalgic interest at the room in which I had opened my first shop, the village houses all looked like tiny boxes after the great buildings of America. I traveled to Naples, where I had dreamed of establishing my Italian headquarters, in search of shoemakers who would execute my grand plan. My reception in Naples was like a blow in the face. Naples would have nothing to do with me. One by one, the shoemakers of the city turned their backs on the scheme. Many would not even listen. Those who consented to listen rejected me outright. It was impossible. It was wild. It was crazy. My last would not fit. My plan would not work. They made it clear that in their eyes, I was nothing more than an Italo-American go-getter, a hustler, an expatriate with the usual quota of high-pressure deals from across the Atlantic. Hurt and upset, but refusing to be disheartened, I left Naples and went south, consoling myself with the thought that perhaps it was natural that the shoemakers of Naples should resent the approaches of the small boy from the tiny local village who had achieved such a reputation that he could command extensive publicity in the Italian press. Things would be better in the big cities of southern Italy, where there would be less antagonism to the local boy-made good. I was wrong. Southern Italy met me with the same blank refusals, the same indifference, the same skepticism, the same curled, disapproving lips, the same words, crazy, impossible, it couldn't work. I left the south of Italy and went northward. In the more industrialized districts of central and northern Italy, I told myself, shoemakers would be more progressive, less hidebound. I went to Rome, and when Rome failed me, I went still further north to Verona, Milan, and Turin, to Venice and Padua. Everywhere the story was the same. I was baffled and angry. The months and the money were slipping away, and these people would not listen to me. Why did they not listen? I was offering them comfortable business with pleasant profits and an insured market. The way they were treating me, you would think I was trying to sell them a gold brick. I pleaded in vain. I used every argument I could think of in vain. 
I was in despair. I'd been in Italy far too long and nothing had been accomplished. Nothing. What could I do? I could not go back to America and confess failure. I could not return and cancel all those orders saying, I'm sorry, but it can't be done. I could not disappoint the hundreds of women who were waiting for the new designs that Ferengamo had promised. Besides, I knew it could be done. I knew it in my bones. I knew it in my heart. I came at last to Florence, knowing that soon I should have to make a decision. I wandered the city. I knew no one and none knew me. But as I strolled through the soft summer night and felt the impact of its great beauty, I thought that perhaps in Florence I might realize my dream. I wandered round the great cathedral in the slim, elegant campanile. I peered through the dimness at the gates of paradise on the baptistry, and I stood, quiet and alone, in the Piazza Signora, the shadow of Palazzo Vecchio, before which all the most stirring events in Florentine history have been enacted. I thought, surely in this beautiful city, with its centuries of wealth and art and its long traditions of noble leather work, I can find the answer to my problem. Next day, I toured the city again, this time on business, meeting the master craftsmen and their artisans. The answer was the same. It was impossible for one man to organize the workmen into the sort of production I needed. Nevertheless, I was not disappointed. It seemed to me as I talked with the workmen that they, if not their masters, were more interested than the men of any city I had yet visited. At the end of the day, I made up my mind. My original plan was impossible in one detail. There was no one to organize the output for me. Therefore, I must amend my scheme and do it myself. I must establish my own factory with artisans under my own control and leave the distribution arrangements in the hands of my colleagues in America. To decide was to act. Within a few days, I had found premises in the Via Manelli large enough to house the number of men I needed. I stocked it with equipment and materials. I scoured Italy for the best shoemakers in the country, offer them better wages than they could obtain elsewhere. Soon, I had nearly 60 men housed under one roof. I showed them my methods of shoemaking and refused to be dismayed by their cautious approach to ideas which to them were revolutionary. I insisted on my own processes, of which they were ignorant. Most important of all, out of the excitement and enthusiasm that my dream was at last coming true, I designed a series of the most beautiful, more astonishing, more extraordinary shoes than I had ever designed in my life. Shoes different from any that had ever been seen before. Designs which my shoemakers had never even thought of doing. Now I had to work quickly. Angry letters were reaching me from California, demanding to know when this promised shoe would arrive and warning me of financial difficulties. I needed no warnings. 
money was running short, and time was running long. When at last I sailed for New York, I carried in my baggage the sum total of all my shoe production during those difficult months. Eighteen shoes, all singles. There was not one pair among them. And not one shoe looked in the least like any other. Yet I was not dismayed. In Florence, I had left an organization of master craftsmen, their wages paid, doing the work I wanted. In my hands were designs that would capture America. In a few days, I would show them to George Miller and set in motion the practical side of the business. I ignored all the difficulties. My workmen would turn my methods. My shoes would sell. My finances would improve. I needed only time patience, and the assistance of my associates in California to make a tremendous success. Out of my new organization and the power of my new designs, I would win all three.